Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. The October issue of Health Affairs explores the relationship between disability and health. Now, conversations about disability often begin with the statement that one in four U.S. adults have a disability. But what does that mean? Disabling conditions are varied, and the people who experience them are equally varied. A discussion of disability policy, its successes, failures, and what more needs to be done must begin with an accurate picture of the population with disabilities. What we mean when we say disabled, how we come up with estimates of the size of the population with disabilities, and how to approach the health disparities we observe are the topics of today's episode of A Health Policy. I'm here with Linda long Assistant Professor at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School. Dr. long and co-authors published an overview paper in the October 2022 issue of Health Affairs on disability and health. Utilizing a biopsychosocial definition of disability, long and co-authors find that health disparities among people with disabilities exist along race, gender, and sexual orientation lines. They make a number of recommendations designed to promote more equitable outcomes. We'll discuss these in today's episode. Dr. long welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. Since you wrote an overview paper, I think it's good that we start with some of the basics that, uh, particularly thinking about terms that tend to roll off the tongue like disabled. Um, And one thing you start with in the paper is to note that even our conceptualization understanding of disability has changed over time. Can you say a little bit about that? Well, let me just start by saying there's no perfect definition of disability, but um, the definition of disability has kind of evolved over time. Initially, it started with what we call the medical model, where disability was seen as purely a characteristic of the person, um, a characteristic of the person's body or mind. And then over time, uh, activists in the disability community, starting in about the 70s, started saying, No, no, disability isn't located in the person. It's located in the environment. It's the environment that's disabling. There are physical barriers. There are attitudinal barriers. Uh, That was what we call the social model. Um, Over time, what has evolved is more of an interactive model of disability, where elements of the, the person's body and mind, along with aspects of the environment, the physical environment, the social environment, attitudes, et cetera, uh, combine um, in this kind of synergistic relationship to create disability. That's where um, both health care and health policy uh, happen, and and that's what they need to address. They need to address that, the interface between the body, the mind, and the environment. So that seems like a really helpful way to think about it, and it's interesting to see the shift from a purely medical approach. Now, we throw around numbers of people with disabilities. I doubt we're probing all of the medical and social and environmental phenomena. So when we say a quarter of people have disability, where, where do we get those data from? That comes, that particular number, and, and there are different numbers in different surveys, and they vary depending on the specific questions asked and the survey methods used. Those particular numbers, I believe, come from the CDC, which uses the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System. That particular survey uh, focuses on functional limitations, um, asking questions like, do you have difficulty climbing stairs, things like that. That's not an exact quote, but questions like that. Um, that's where that, num- that particular number comes from. 
Now, your paper is chock full of data, and I'm not going to ask you to read tables because that's not interesting on a podcast. Um, but you do have a lot of data in there about the prevalence of disability and its incidence across various groups. And I wonder if you could uh, just give us some of the top line sense of, of some of those uh, topics. Well, let's see. Across racial and ethnic group, um, people who are black have a slightly higher prevalence of disability than whites, and this increases uh, when you adjust for age. Latinos, uh, Native Hawaiians, Pacific Islanders have a lower disability prevalence than whites, but uh, when you adjust for age, those differences disappear. So uh, members of the LGBTQ uh, community are at a higher risk of disability. Folks who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, etc., are significantly more likely to be disabled than heterosexual individuals. So if we're trying to figure out policies to reduce some of the inequities experienced by people with disabilities, if we start with, say, uh, uh, mobility limitations, so that's a, that's a, a prevalent disability, and you might think what kinds of interventions are needed to target that, and that would benefit some subset of the population, but others who have other kinds of impairments might say, well, that's great that that's there, but it, it really doesn't address the needs I have. Well, universal design is one um, approach. We didn't really mention that in our paper, but universal design um, is something that could benefit all folks with disabilities because it would mean that environments um, would uh, accommodate people with a, a wide array of needs. Uh, also, compliance with the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, providing accommodations to people who are, uh, you know, either mobility, have mobility impairments or who have visual impairments or hearing, uh, hearing impairments, um, who are deaf or hard of hearing, accommodating folks uh, willingly and um, gladly <laughs> would definitely go a long way addressing some of the environmental barriers that people deal with. Well, you've uh, introduced the topic of policy, which takes up a good portion of the overview paper. So I'd like to spend a little more time with you on, uh, you mentioned enforcement of existing laws. The paper also mentioned some new policies that might be helpful. Um, we'll dive a little bit more into that after we take a short break. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Linda long who is a co-author of one of the overview papers in the October 2022 issue of Health Affairs that focuses on disability and health. The paper does focus on the issue of equity and the inequities that exist within the population of people with disabilities, as well as between people who have a disability and those who do not. Um, you go into some detail about some things that we could do that would be helpful. Just before the break, you mentioned both universal design, which isn't in the paper, and enforcement of the Americans with Disability Act. Can you tee up some of the other policies that you mentioned that you think would be helpful? Sure. Well, the Affordable Care Act did did a lot to improve health access to health coverage for people with disabilities um, by reducing the, the prevalence of pre-existing condition exclusions, uh, creating premium subsidies, expanding Medicaid in those states that, that agreed to expand Medicaid. Um, something else that I think could uh, improve access to health coverage for people with disabilities um, is to improve the existing Medicaid buy-in programs. Um, in the 1990s, and actually, uh, let me just start. Uh, the very first Medicaid buy-in program uh, was uh, created here in Massachusetts 
um, by Chapter 23 of the Acts of 1988. Uh, it's called Common Health, and it allows people with disabilities who meet the Social Security standard for disability, and uh, we could have a whole webinar on that, <laughs> a whole podcast on that. But um, suffice to say that that, um, that program basically said that um, anyone who meets a Social Security standard for disability um, can obtain Medicaid without any income or um, or asset limits simply by paying a premium, and the premium is a sliding scale premium which increases with your income. This idea, the general idea, was adopted at the federal level, and in 1997, in the Balanced Budget Act, um, uh, provisions were passed that made a Medicaid buy-in program possible for um, other states. However, most states impose a fairly stringent income or asset limit, um, better than the, than the standard Medicaid income and asset limits, but still, still low enough that uh, it, they keep people with disabilities either uh, in poverty or very near poverty. And so an improvement uh, in the buy-in program could be that they get rid of those, that, that the federal, actually what would be the most practical thing would be for the federal government um, to increase the, the federal matching percentage for states that agree to eliminate the income and asset limits. So I want to stay here for a moment, uh, maybe in part because my First job out of graduate school was implementing Chapter Twenty Three, so oh. uh, this is very, uh, very near and dear to my heart. Although I wasn't yes. on, the, I wasn't working on Common Health, but I uh -huh. was working on other elements of it. So this is, it takes me back. So I want to go back there with you. Okay. Um, so the idea here is that Medicaid offers a a, a comprehensive set of benefits, much more comprehensive uh, uh, supports in particular for people with disabilities than traditional commercial insurance. But standard Medicaid eligibility thresholds may put, uh, may exclude people with disabilities from Medicaid coverage. Mm -hmm. So you want to open up the benefits to people who would find it worth paying into mm -hmm. the Medicaid program at, at presumably a pretty significantly subsidized premium, but they're at least making a contribution, it enables them to keep Medicaid as they're employed. And then they get some of the wraparound benefits that Medicaid offers. Mm -hmm. Is that yes. how it works yes. in common health? Exactly, yes. Mm -hmm. And do we have a sense of why other states, is it just a budget uh, reason that other states don't take this up? Um, that would be my guess. I don't have proof of that, but um, that would be my guess. Seems like a reasonable supposition, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. And that's why Usually you Usually that's how things work, right? <laughs> yes. So that that would make it uh, why you would start with the possibility of increasing the match rate. So that's a very interesting opportunity. And what it's basically saying is we have a program that already serves a large number of people with disabilities. It's done a lot of work to try to figure out how to meet those needs. Mm -hmm. If more of the people with those needs were in that program, it would help close some of the gaps. Are there other policies in your overview paper that you'd like to draw attention to? Sure. Um, so um, one thing I'd like to see is states to continue uh, what started with the Olmstead decision and expand access to home and community-based services by rebalancing, um, uh, continuing to rebalance the um, distribution up between institutional and community services. Um, you know, states have, I think, slowly been trying to um, develop more community-based services for people, but um, it really varies, it varies tremendously from state to state. Um, and um, so I'd like to see uh, more progress on that front. 
there ha- there is federal matching available under some programs, um, increased federal matching available under some programs for that. Um, so there is an incentive there. Yeah, so we recently, a number of years ago, passed the 50% mark where more than half of the spending on long-term supports and services in Medicaid is now non-institutional, but mm-hmm. that's still, as you note, there's significant variation from state to state, and it still leaves a large share inside institutions. Um, This may not be a fair question, but I'll ask it nonetheless. One of the papers in our uh, October issue did note that rates of of nursing home utilization among people under 65 has not fallen at the same rate as people over 65. A lot of these efforts uh, to move people out of institutions have been focused on elders. Uh, Do you have any insights into what might be uh, helpful for achieving some progress for younger people with disabilities along the lines of what we've had for older adults? Well, I think building a more robust community um, community system, um, community-based care system, I think would definitely help. Um, you know, I think, you know, some young people with disabilities do have family supports. Some of them may not. Um, and so there needs to be a, a you know, a very robust professionalized system. Um, there's also there are also issues like access to housing. Um, that's and support, including supported housing. I think that um, those are both uh, concerns um, as well. So I think there are a variety of of policies that could be employed to um, to get more younger people out of nursing home facilities. One of the first policies you mentioned were changes ushered in by the Affordable Care Act, and we I didn't follow up on that, but I'd like to now. Uh, when people talk about pre-existing condition exclusions and getting rid of them or getting rid of lifetime caps, I think most people have in mind people with very high medical costs. Mm-hmm. That's not synonymous with uh, having disability. So say a little more about why these changes are important for people with disabilities. Some of it is the kind of the not the the, the home care services. That's some of it for sure because you can have you can you can be relatively medically stable but still have um, meaningful support needs. That would be one one thing I would um, think about when answering that question. Yeah, it seems to me um, the overlap between sort of disability and high medical costs. Um, it's they're. They're different but related, and and I'm just I am struck that when we had sort of a political debate over pre-existing conditions, for example, the the image that was sort of put forward was not really of people with disabilities, of people with chronic conditions, which may or may not be disabling. Um, so so I think trying to understand the implications for people with disabilities of some of these provisions is is really important, and maybe wasn't as as much attended to. Um, at the outset. Well, I mean, you know, there's there's such a there there's so much variation within the disabled population. I mean, you do have people who have very high medical costs, and it does help those individuals. And then it it really ranges the gamut. I mean, on average, people with disabilities do have higher health costs than um, than other people. That is certainly true. Um, so so it really it does help people with disabilities. The getting rid of pre-existing condition exclusions or, or minimizing them do, did help folks with disabilities. Um, the title of your paper and the early conversations we had uh, drew on the concept of equity. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, the policies you've mentioned, which would be helpful to anyone with disabilities, would have an equity-improving element. But I wonder if there's more you could say about 
the pursuit of, of equity in this area? Well, I think um, expanding the scope of services covered by public and private insurance. Um, in the paper, we talked about medical necessity definitions. Um, and medical necessity definitions can be very, very limiting. Um, uh, they often uh, are not focused on you know, trying to help people live uh, independently in the community. Um, and um, one state that has a very a, a, a good uh, medical necessity definition is Delaware. Um, its medical de- necessity definition refers explicitly to the aim of attaining or retaining independence, self-care, dignity, self-determination, personal safety, and integration into all natural family, community, um, and facility environments and activities. So, so it really has this... Um, it really it, it, it legitimizes um, this the goal of getting people involved in the community, um, promoting inclusion in the community um, as a as an aim of its um, its medically necessary services, and that and and that services that do those things um, are considered medically necessary. Yeah. So I want to uh, discuss for a moment the implications of that. I mean, basically, medical necessity is a requirement for insurance to pay for services if they're not medically necessary, then you they're not necessary. Um, so that actually has really significant implications. And I suppose for, for when you think about the needs of people with disabilities, um, there are, it, listening to you read the, the definition in Delaware, there are many things that are really important to a life of dignity and participation and inclusion that that are not curative, which I suppose is sort of the easy part of medical mm-hmm. necessity. Right. Yes. Traditionally, that was the focus, you know, sort of make, survival. <laughs> I think pure survival was the focus, curative or curative, you know, improving someone's medical condition. But um there's so much more that people need. And so I'm really pleased to see a definition like this one. So as we come to a close, I wonder if you could just uh, say a little bit about any work you're doing right now, going a little deeper into your own areas of particular interest within disability policy. Well, let's see. Um, You know, I am doing some work um, with our integrated care program um, for dual eligibles here in Massachusetts, and um, that's a very good program. One way, one way to try to address concerns about cost while um, while addressing the need for people to be included in the community and have uh, broad definitions of medical necessity, et cetera, is to to use services like care coordination um, and to to in a thoughtful way that promotes community inclusion, uh, manage care. That's one approach. Um, Something else, I, I know that um, Lisa Iazzoni's article talked a lot about the challenges have, people have in, in obtaining medical care, and they're very real. <laughs> they're very real. People with disabilities have tremendous difficulty um, accessing medical care. Um, unfortunately, clinicians are not trained um, to um, provide that care to people with sort of um, obvious disabilities. Um, so significant mobility impairments, blindness, deafness, intellectual disabilities. Um, typically, the, the, these these uh, services are not required, or, or rather, I should say, the training is not required in medical schools or residency programs, and so um, it gets overlooked. So that's that's a real challenge um, for people as well. Um, I know that um, the AAMC, the American Association of Medical Colleges, uh, is 
has embarked on a diversity and inclusion effort, and I believe that they have, to at least some extent, included disability within that effort. But And so hopefully maybe that'll improve over time, but disability still isn't included on any of the licensing exams. Um, and so, you know, what, what gets measured gets done, right? <laughs> uh, and so um, it would be important for, for there to be some progress on that front as well. Well, Dr. Belial, thank you for writing the overview paper with your co-authors and for explaining sort of the the terrain here so that we can uh, have a better understanding of, of the needs in the population. Uh, thank you for that work and thank you for being my guest today on Health Policy. Thank you, my pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about the Health Policy.